Welcome back to the 20th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex. Today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, anything from union activity here in the U.S. to energy production in Israel. And of course, we will end today with the Daily Delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive, ready to take on the day. Now that's enough rambling from me. Let's get into our daily debate. So unions, they have a really long history here in the United States, from their blossoming period in the beginning of the 20th century to when a lot of them were smashed apart or really had their wings clipped by Reagan during his presidency. So in the comments, I have a question for you. You can put a simple pro for pro-union or no for anti-union. And if you feel like putting down there how long you have been in the workforce, I think it would be interesting if there's any correlation that we could detect there. You know, it's just one of those things where I'm trying to get a better gauge of how people feel about certain issues and how they line up demographically. So with that out of the way, let's get into our first story from Truth Out. Amazon warehouse workers wage work stoppage in protest after fire breaks out. And if you were to pull up this article, it's a little misleading. The The first picture you see is actually of a protest that was held between the Amazon labor union and the Starbucks labor union in September. So if you heard about that, we're not talking about that one. We're talking about a, a new work stoppage protest that happened uh, this last Monday. And what happened in a Staten Island warehouse of Amazons is one of the trash compactors had been smoking for almost a week or so from some of the accounts that we're seeing, and it actually caught on fire. So the people that were on duty, they were taken into the break room, and they stayed there. And then the managers told them, okay, now now it's time to go back to work. And they said, absolutely not. And it's not just a small number of employees. We're talking 650 employees were involved in this protest, and it lasted nearly three hours. So, you know, that may not seem like a really long time. It may not seem like a huge deal. I mean, and also in the grand scheme of things, it's really not. 650 workers at one location for three hours. But this is a long, long-term effort. The Amazon Labor Union has been trying for years. They just now uh, officially are recognized as a union, not by Amazon, but they finally had a voting to make it official between their members. They've been talking about it for a long time because if you haven't heard about Amazon, Amazon's unethical or at least morally dubious uh, work practices, you know, not allowing them to have their cell phones in case anything happens on the job, which could be dangerous, um, or the intense amount of tracking that they do, or having their break rooms so far away that by the time they get there, they have to immediately leave to get back to wherever they were working. And I've had some friends who worked at Amazon, and there's also a good side. They said they pay really well, and if you're willing to put in the work and you're willing to work hard, then it's rewarding. So, you know, there, there are two sides to every story. But the fact that we've seen so many negative stories come out of so many different locations, it, it speaks to a trend in the way 
Amazon does some of their warehouse uh, inventorying or how they treat those employees there. So I want to read a quote. Workers, quote, workers also protest an offer of 25 cent raises that the company had made in the past, which the union called, quote, insulting and said would amount to a pay cut due to inflation. And the fact that workers at the warehouse have still yet to have their union recognized by the $1.2 trillion company, end quote. And like I just said, mentioned, it's not rec- the union's not recognized by Amazon, but they are an official union because they have voting members now and they're actually paying dues towards them. But I, I think when you read this in the article, you say, oh, okay, so they're protesting because of dangerous conditions in that Staten Island location, but also, oh, they're upset about this 20-cent raise- raises. But this statement comes from the labor union. So I think it's a little bit misleading. It sounds noble, but I'm pretty sure, and not 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure that the union really just took advantage of this opportunity that, oh, this is going to be a story. There was a fire. They decided to have a work stoppage protest, and they kind of tacked on part of their agenda to this news story as it was coming out. So, you know, of course, it's great political opportunism by the union. And, of course, they want to get their message out there. But just keep that in mind. I'm pretty sure at least no mentions that I can find from any of the employees or the the Twitter accounts or any other articles say that that was a part of the protest, at least intentionally. Now, it may have come up and it may have been mentioned by some of the people But the main focus of that protest was the workers were concerned with their safety and they were not willing to go back out to work until the trash compactor was fully out and it was even fixed. Quote, the ALU, Amazon Labor Union, says that the stoppage may be the largest collective action ever taken by Amazon workers. It is also the union's first major work stoppage since it voted to unionize earlier this year. A lawyer for the union, Seth Goldstein, told Motherboard that workers said the compactor had caught fire, had been manufacturing, malfunctioning, and smoking for weeks. Quote, God forbid they have to replace the compactor and lose their profits, said Goldstein. Quote, one of the reasons people are unionizing at Amazon is because the employer cares about profits and doesn't care about their lives. Here's the transparent, where's the transparency here? End quote. And the lawyer brings up a great point. And in some of my classes that I've been taking recently, we have a conversation about putting people before profits, which obviously is a very hard thing to do. You're a company. At the end of the day, you are trying to make money. So it's not necessarily realistic to put people over profits, at least in today's current business ecosystem. And, you know, that may sound very harsh and people may not agree because, yes, you should be concerned about your consumer and you should be concerned about your workers, especially because without those workers and without those consumers, there is no value created by the company. But you still have to worry about profit. But he brings up a great point, which is that Amazon really focuses on profit over people. A lot of their practices like tracking their employees or how they even manage some of their inventory is very, very profit-focused. And there was a great article, a law review article that I was reading, 
And Amazon's having trouble trouble right now in different uh, courts, especially the Sixth Court of Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, where they're trying to claim, no, 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 we're not a seller. We are a third party distributor. We are a, th- a platform that buyers come to and sellers come to, and we just initiate the transaction. And you know that sounds pretty good, right? But the main point of the article is by saying that, by having that, oh, we're just a platform, they basically can remove all liability from themselves because, oh, no, 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 we're not selling it. We're not guaranteeing it. We're not making sure that these products are safe. We're just facilitating the transaction. And it's, you know, it would be a great argument if it was 100% true but they have so many so much control over these products. They buy them in bulk or they make sure that the seller has to sign a contract with them saying you can't have different prices on different platforms and you have to give us a certain amount of inventory so we can easily get it out to our customers. Well, at that point, they're already part of the supply chain and they have more control over the product or at least where it's stored and the price that they're able to put on their website than the seller does. I mean, yeah, okay, the seller can decide what price they're putting it on other platforms, but if they put it on Amazon, they have to match all the other products that are being put on there. So Amazon, because of how large it is and how many diverse products it sells and the amount of eyes that it attracts, can basically bargain down those prices and say, well, hold on, you're selling it for $20 over on eBay. Well, you have to sell it for $20 over here. And you may be like, well, of course, that makes sense. Why wouldn't you want to sell it at the same price in different locations? Well, Amazon takes a 7 to 15% commission on anything you sell on their platform. So you're basically cutting your margins by 7 or 15%, 7 to 15%. So it's a really tricky process and of course there's a great argument for it which is like i just said they have eyes they allow their sellers to get out to more people and that gives them a lot of bargaining power over those sellers but at the end of the day if they're going to wield that hammer and say no no you're going to do it our way or you're not going to do it at all you're not going to sell on amazon and then you're going to have to go out into the wild wild west and have to sell it somewhere else you know, that's a really hard decision for sellers to make. So they put them in a really, really tough position. So these practices, not just in their warehouses and with their employees, but with the people that sell on their platforms, and not to mention the tricky practices that come in when it comes to who they're selling to. I mean, if you go to the the buy box, it tells you who the supplier is of certain products. But in the contract that Amazon has with the sellers, it says we can substitute out your product if we have a similar one that is currently in stock. The consumer is not aware that they're getting a substituted product. They just know, oh, I'm getting a blender that has three buttons. They don't know which brand it's coming from. And that's you know a little bit deceptive. And of course, there are great reasons for it. Oh, well, we can get it to you faster. It doesn't matter who made it if they're the same product. But once again, it's another layer of removing themselves from being liable. So these are practices that are not necessarily ethical, and they raise a lot of questions. And that's why they're going through these court battles right now. And that's also why this article picked up a lot of steam, because we've been seeing these practices when it comes to labor bus uh, union busting by Amazon for the last few years. And at some point, 
they're going to have such a big walkout that they're going to have to respond. Either that or they're going to get hit by antitrust lawsuits from the government. And keep your eyes out for that. I, I forgot to mention at the top of this segment, so if you've made it this far, thank you. I am biased. I do not love Amazon. I'm trying to show you both sides. I'm trying to make sure that you understand Amazon's argument, the labor union's argument, and Amazon's argument versus the consumer and the seller argument, but I am biased. I do not love Amazon. I think that they, when I tell people that, they always say, well, why? And when I give them my answer, it's even more confusing, which is, they're just really good at what they do. They're crazily good at business. Jeff Bezos is a business mastermind. He's diversified the company so much, taken it into so many different areas. I'm pretty sure, uh, you might want to double check me on this one, upward of 60% of web services are run through Amazon Web Services. I mean, that's, that's insane, the amount of power that they wield with that alone. So, yes, I, I'm biased against Amazon. I think they're going to be our corporate overlords one day. I mean, you know, I hope I'm wrong, but maybe <laughs> maybe in like 20 years you'll come back to this one podcast and say, wow, no, he was right. And then you'll turn around, you'll say the national anthem, and you'll say all hail President Bezos. We'll see. We'll see. I hope that's not the case. Um, but unions have a very outsized political element to them and this one at Amazon really hasn't gained that political influence yet the ability to lobby because they don't have enough support and they're not officially recognized so once that happens then we may see a little bit more pushback from them and Amazon may have to say okay we're recognizing you and then they can kind of get the ball rolling they can actually you know raise a little bit more money have a nationwide union and then, therefore, give money to different uh, politicians to regulate Amazon and make sure that they're practicing safe workplace measures. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Let's hope. But speaking of outsized political influence, oh, you love that transition, don't you? We have an <laughs> article here from The Daily Signal. New California law forces taxpayers to pay for unions' members' dues. So this new bill in California has started to really raise questions about the, the nature of relations between unions and politicians. And we've known they've existed for a long time, like that period in the early 20th century that I talked about when they were blossoming. There was a lot of pull, push and pull between unions and workers, especially if you remember how Henry Ford dealt with unions. He was absolutely vicious. He had his own private police force outside the Dearborn factory where you can, I don't know if there are still images of that, but the imagery when you read about it is is absolutely terrible. And from that era, they started to use their dues to start to pay politicians to really take a look at these companies and enforce better working practices, possibly increase the minimum wage, things of that nature. So we've known that these relationships, we know that these unions and politicians have been tightly woven together for a long time, but their their power kind of faded during the Reagan era. But now, as we have a president, Joe Biden, who's very pro-union, you can kind of see 
their influence growing a little bit more. I mean, we know the teachers unions have a really, really strong grip over the education system in the United States. But also, I want to bring up the reason that you're seeing a lot more of these stories is because Biden is pro-union. If he was not pro-union, there would not be as much of a political motive to directly point out their flaws and try to, you know, have a gotcha moment on every single story when it comes to things like this. Because, you know, if it's not politically prudent, if there's not big politicians who aren't supporting it, then these news companies aren't going to go after it. But because Biden is pro-union, they can latch onto these stories, send them out to the public, and say, look look what your president is backing, and try to get him out of office. The Daily Signal is not always conservative in nature, but they have a lot of conservative writers. So just, you know, I'm trying to inform you of the bias. Keep it in mind. I am biased myself. Everybody is. But if you have more knowledge about the situation, it helps you form a better opinion. Quote, the law, Assembly Bill 185, provides $400 million of taxpayers' money to a select group of people who purchase a private optional service. The so-called tax credit is refundable or available to people who do not pay state income taxes, which makes it a payment instead of a tax credit. The stated intent is, quote, to help individuals with the cost of being a member of a union, end quote. So whether you're a member of a private union or a public union, you are getting a tax credit to reimburse your union fees. And, you know, off the top of the head, that doesn't sound half bad. If you like unions, you absolutely love this policy because, oh, yeah, I'm paying to be part of my union. That's a big chunk, but they're helping me secure my job, make sure that I'm getting paid what I should. But, you know, I kind of want the government to step in and help me out here because the unions are doing what the government can't on a regulatory level. So, you know, if you're pro-union, that makes sense. And then if you're anti-union, you may not love it, but at the end of the day, you know, they also, even if you're not part of a union, they still help get the average wage at certain companies up. Not always, but at certain companies they increase the wage for everybody, not just the union members. So maybe you don't mind too much. But at the end of the day, you're paying more in taxes. And I don't think anybody likes paying more in taxes. So that's another side where the average Californian, even if they are part of a member uh, a member of a union, they're not going to necessarily love paying more taxes. So, and this is kind of speaking to the pro-union uh, idea or support that is in California, especially Gavin Newsom. I I just want to point something out here. Just so you're aware, Newsom took almost $2 from teachers' unions when he was running for office. That comes from MSNBC. And the California State Workers' Union donated $1 in aid to Newsom to fight the recall election, The Hill. And both of those articles will be in the link in the description. There'll be one link where it'll bring you to the Flipboard page. And it was interesting because the Hill article was very easy to find. The, MS, the MSN article was uh, featured, but 
the link no longer worked. So I had to throw it into the Wayback Machine and to create an external link so you could get to that article, a little snapshot of what they were saying there. So obviously Newsom is a very pro-union candidate, and they've given him money in the past. So this is kind of his way of, I don't want to say a kickback, because that implies political corruption, but that's his way of saying, okay, you guys helped me get into office, now I'm going to do something for you and your members. And that's what they do. The unions lobby, lobby, lobby. They try to get politicians on their side and get benefits from it. So, you know, it seems like, okay, the political system is working how it's meant to, air quotes. How the current system is operating, it seems to be working just fine. But it it really speaks to the growing influence that unions have over politics in America. When I look at this, it's a little bit scary to me that they wield so much power that they can get the governor and the Congress of a state to pass a mandatory tax that pays for their members' dues. So essentially, they're getting more money back from the state that they just gave to them for those politicians. So imagine that they spend, what, 400000 uh, no, let's use the exact number they have here. So $400 million tax credit. So the unions probably get about $300 million of that, uh, and then the union members keep the rest of it. So then guess what? They're going to turn around and give $200 million to those politicians. It's, it's a cycle. The government is saying, okay, here's your money. You can use it as a tax credit to pay for your union dues. So basically, those union dues are endorsed by the government. Then the union takes that money that is endorsed by the government and gives it back to the government. You see the cycle here? You see why lobbying is so dangerous and why it can lead to so many... Corruption is a really strong word, and I don't want to come hard at any of these people, but you can see how it leads to practices that are only going to keep those same people in power and keep the unions with such a high influence because now they've locked it in. Now they're saying that you are a permanent part of this political system, and if you don't give that money to us every single tax season, if you don't you know, put in pro-union candidates, then they may take out the legislation. They may strike down the legislation so that you can no longer get that money from the government through the tax credits that your members are getting. You see how dangerous that is? That is extremely scary. And even if you are pro-union, you should look at that and say, do I really want to be in bed with the California government or any government that any state government that you're at? I just It's just questions that you need to ask. I have another quote here. Quote, consequentially, the new law would run afoul of the First Amendment's free speech protection. The Supreme Court ruled in 2008 in Janus versus AFSCME that public sector unions are inherently political and those states cannot force their employees to pay public employee union dues. So that brings up a good point. This is going to go to the Supreme Court. We'll see if it stands. But at the end of the day, I don't think that matters. I mean, if it doesn't stand, great. We'll have it enshrined in federal law. And if the federal government wants to change it, they can pass a law in Congress. But it just speaks to how blatant they are about 
being in bed with one another. And <laughs> the fact that they're willing to come out and say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sleeping with Billy Bob Joe. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're sleeping with Gavin Newsom. I, it's just, it's sad that people are so aware, or at least they don't care enough about this sort of issue, that the governor, sorry, the Democrats in California are willing to say, okay, yeah, at this point, we might as well just make it obvious that the unions are funding half of our campaigns and that we're kicking this back to them, essentially. It's like they expect the people to be stupid, or at least they don't expect the people to care at all. But, you know, that's just me being a little bit politically inflammatory. You can tell where I stand on this, like I mentioned in my other podcasts. It's just lobbying, man. I understand the utility of it, that we want to make sure that corporations and other interests have a voice beyond just the people in the society. But when you, when you're lobbying of a politician and then the politician gives you a basically free uh, sum of money and then you use that money to put that same politician or other ones like him back in office. <laughs> At what point are you not necessarily serving your members uh, interest anymore, but just your own in the politicians? You know what I mean? Maybe I'm being a little bit mean there. Maybe I'm being a little bit naive. And if you feel that way, you may be yelling at your your screen right now, and I understand, you know. I'm young. I'm naive. And that's also why I asked about the daily debate, because I haven't been in the workforce so long. I mean, I've been working for one company for about seven years, and before that I worked for another company for about three or so. So, you know, 10 years in a work environment altogether it's it's different. Maybe you're part of a, a union and you've been working for 50-some years and you love the way that they treat you. I don't have that perspective. So if you want to put comments down there and you want to explain it to me and make sure that my ignorant statements at least get addressed or you know, give me an alternative point of view, please do. All right. So the last article that we have here is from the Times of Israel. Energon announces new Israel gas discovery estimated to be 7 to 15 billion cubic meters. So on Thursday, Energon announced that it had found a and intended to create a new well in block 23 off the coast of Israel. And the theoretical yield is 58 billion cubic meters of natural gas. So just to put that in comparison for you, and I I pulled up a little calculator and did some math last night, that's roughly 23 million Olympic swimming pools worth of natural gas. That's absolutely insane. Quote, the company said that the Hermes discovery had lowered the risk of exploring other nearby areas, such as the Poseidon and Orpheus structures. Energon has exercised its option to drill a sixth well with Stella Drilling Limited, targeting the Hermes prospect located on Block 23 between Hermes and Israel's coast. Off these blocks are located, all of these blocks are located within Israel's waters, south of the maritime area whose ownership is disputed by Israel and Lebanon. So that means that this oil and natural gas is undisputedly Israel's. And that's that's good to hear because they announced this to 
the London stock market. So that's definitely going to make their stock jump up. There's no conflict here. It's not, oh, well, this is disputed territory. This is clearly in their territory. It is clearly that theirs, and that company has the right to drill there with no problem. Quote, for the sake of comparison, the Karish and Tanin fields contain a total of around 75 billion cubic meters of natural gas. About 12 billion cubic meters are consumed annually by Israel, end quote. And I think that last part is, is very important. Only about 12 billion cubic meters are consumed by Israel. So off of their old fields in Koresh and Tanan, Tanan that leaves about 63 billion cubic meters that they can sell. And off of this new one, if you take it out, which is about 58 billion or so, if you take the 12 billion out, you're looking at uh, 46 billion cubic meters of natural gas that they can sell to their allies in other countries. And the reason I bring this up, and I thought this was important, is because if you haven't been paying attention, OPEC and OPEC Plus announced that they were going to cut the amount of oil and other refined gases that they're going to be producing per day by about a million barrels, which is going to increase the cost of gas and around the world. And even though this is mostly natural gas, there is some crude here that they can refine. Um, it kind of speaks to the importance of our allies, not just in uh, the Middle East, but also around the world, that are exploring options and creating new drilling sites. And it, it makes me a little bit more optimistic that, you know, okay, OPEC plus, they are cutting the amount of oil that they're producing. That's unfortunate. They're siding with Russia. That is unfortunate. But we have other allies who are starting to speculate more in oil fields and they're starting to drill more. And if we really have to, if we don't want to up our own domestic uh, oil, uh, the amount of oil fields that we have and the amount of oil that we're drilling here in the United States, we can lean on our other country, other allies and create stronger ties through them. Uh, then again, you know, at this time, especially, you know, in general, I'm okay with more oil uh, drilling and speculation just because I think we need to be energy independent until we can get to a green economy. I think that's the realistic take. I don't think we should be in a totally green economy, at least at this point, because it's extremely expensive. And also a lot of that infrastructure is made in China, especially the solar panels. And I think in order to be at a lower risk of having Chinese products that could possibly be a national security threat. I think that we should have the green energy market really built up here in America. We should have solar panels and wind turbine creating factories and facilities here in America. Then I'd be totally okay with transitioning to a green economy. I don't really give, I don't really care where the energy comes from. I want it to be, you know, good for the earth at the end of the day because I want to live on this earth and not have it be a desert wasteland. But at the end of the day, I don't really care where the energy comes from as long as we have it. And preferably, I would prefer that energy comes from within America just so we're not dependent on other nations. But since we're not upping the drilling in our own country and we've shut down certain leases on federal land, 
it's nice to see other countries that are current allies of us starting to up their production so we can at least get it from them if we can't get it from OPEC or Russia. And we don't want to buy it from India because they're buying it through Russia. So basically, we'd just be supporting Russia at that point. And with Saudi Arabia aligning itself with Russia, we have to be very careful. I've seen a lot of comments. There was a tweet from Bernie Sanders. uh, And if you know me personally, yes, I know. I got Twitter. I gave in. We want to build the brand. We want people to, I want to be able to engage with certain people that listen to the podcast, spread the message out there, and also just provide easier commentary than just the podcast. Because the mission of the Daily Flip is to make news consumption easy. So on Twitter, I can send out a little blurb about certain news articles that I read that day or comment on other big news stories. And, you know, it kind of makes it a little bit easier if you don't have an entire 30 minutes to listen to the podcast. You can just look at the tweets real quick and see what's going on. One a day is the plan for now, but we'll see. But there was a tweet from Bernie Sanders that said we need to pull all military support from Saudi Arabia. And I think that's a an interesting response to say the least. I understand what we're going for, which is to threaten to not support them militarily anymore. But do we really want to push them into the arms of Saudi uh, of Russia even more? I would argue no. Because Russia's another huge arms manufacturer and so is China. So if we're not going to do it, we're not going to provide their defense systems. Guess where they're going to go? Russia and China. Well, it would basically be building a coalition against us on the world stage. I just don't think it's a smart move. I understand why there's political pressure to do it because we want to give Saudi Arabia or make sure that they're aware that there are consequences to these type of actions when it comes to undercutting the price of oil and making it you know, more expensive for the U.S. to buy it. But at the end of the day, I don't think that we want them to be on the side of Russia and China if some sort of conflict breaks out across the world. I'm not trying to be cynical. I'm not trying to imply that World War III is coming. But you have to have that perspective. You have to have that worst-case perspective when it comes to foreign policy. So that's just something that I saw on Twitter. I commented on it. I, I tweeted back at Bernie Sanders. He didn't say anything, of course. He has way too many replies to ever, ever read through all of them. But I just thought it was an interesting talking point that at least should be brought up. So moving on from all that negative stuff, all that cynical stuff, we have our daily delight. This one comes from the Dodo. Dog walking by woman on bench suddenly realizes he knows her. So Valeria Navarro and her dog Harley had been apart for about six months after being together for nearly six years. That's a really strong bond. I, my dog and I, you know, 13 years Got her on Christmas, absolutely loved her. I don't know if she would necessarily smell me and care about me. Maybe my mom. She would probably care more about my mom than me. But, you know, that's still, you know, six years is a long time to build that bond. And Navarro, you know, she had to leave the country, and that's why she's been away for six months. She was exploring job opportunities in Europe. Quote, when Navarro finally returned home, she decided to surprise Harley at a local park. She sat down on a bench there, her back toward turned towards him to see if her best friend would recognize her by smell. It took just one whiff. He recognized me. I was so happy. My heart exploded, Navarro said. He was so excited, and it was amazing. And it's, end quote, and it's always nice to 
see the bond between a dog and their owner on full display, you know, it's, it's really heartwarming. And I love seeing those kind of videos uh, in a time like this where there's so much negativity out there. So if you want to see the video from this article of the two reuniting or where you want to read any of the articles that we went through here today, there will be a link in the description uh, where you can find everything below that like and subscribe button. And also go down there, follow me on Twitter, and you can get some up to do uh, more daily kind of news and stay up to date on what's going on. And with that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.